1: Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows, maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months.
0: (laughs) That was the chip-filled magic we're looking for.
1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Today, we are delighted to bring you part two of our discussion of the sixth book in the Harry Potter series Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. That's the second last book down another father figure dead, and things are looking dire for our heroes. But don't worry, we're keeping our spirits up here at Witch Please headquarters by remembering some of our favorite things. That's not the tune.
0: (laughs) That is exactly how the tune goes. These are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) Yeah, no, you nailed it. You nailed it.
1: I'm good at tunes. Yep. Yeah. Hey, Marcel, what are your favorite things? The internet. Good. Yep. Uh, Ruffled regular chips and wine.
0: I think we... Oh, we have those. We have many of those things. Uh, My favorite thing, my number one favorite thing is thematically incoherent rambling conversations about how books made us feel.
1: Whoa, that's so way more hardcore than mine.
0: I guess it's time for the sorting chat. (laughs) So this book
1: made me sad. It's a bummer, hey? Mm -hmm. There's some like... There's like a major death, yeah, like a really big one. <laughs> you know what I realized when the book came out, the spoiler-free reveal was that somebody major dies, yeah. And when I was reading it this time around, I noticed all the things that throw you in the in the book to, oh my God,
0: you're being led to think somebody else is going to die.
1: You're being led to think that somebody else has died? At the end there, when like when you get to the end and you're like, oh, there's the Dark Mark and there's like people fighting and then Draco comes upstairs and Harry's immobilized and he and Dumbledore are talking and he's like, yeah, one of your people are dead. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, my God, the whole time we're being led to believe that somebody else significant has died and then fucking Dumbledore dies. Yeah. And no one is expecting that. No. That was that was heavy duty. No, we
0: really weren't. And I remember distinctly assuming since Dumbledore is so Gandalf like assuming he was coming back in the next mm-hmm. book and <laughs> being like oh I mm, yeah I guess yeah. I didn't pay enough attention in the previous book when it was very clearly explained to us <laughs> that death is forever <laughs>
1: it's like
0: okay it's yeah. fine I was young I wasn't a very good reader
1: like the first time I read this book I was still waiting for Sirius to come back and so then when Dumbledore is dead I was like okay so which of them is going to come back because yeah. like one of them has to come back because you can't have these two major father figures for Harry be dead. That's that's
0: yeah. What the,
1: <laughs> that's ludicrous.
0: That's outrageous. And yet, so the one thing I wanted to chat about in this section a little bit was um when Harry explicitly uses the word obsessed to describe how he is feeling about figuring out what Malkoy is up to.
1: Mal who? Wow. <laughs> Uh, I haven't haven't
0: had enough wine yet. My brain's not going good.
1: I love the idea of a parody character named Malcoy, who is just always around the corner instead of sneering. is like, hey.
0: He's always (laughs) holding a fan half over his face and gazing at you over
1: it. Mother says I shouldn't talk to you. You're a (laughs) mudblood. oh no
0: (laughs) malcoy okay so (laughs) for obvious and sexy reasons harry is harry is obsessed with malfoy right with figuring out what malfoy is up to um and he he talks about it as an obsession and we see that it becomes an unhealthy obsession that's drawing him away from the other things going on in his life um Mm -hmm. not only including like quidditch which used to be the thing he cared about the most, but also the very important thing that Dumbledore explicitly told him to do. Harry's like, he's too obsessed. He's too single-mindedly focused on this one issue. And it made me think about how the book is actually playing out a variety of obsessions Mm -hmm. and seems to be interested sort of across the board in the ways that unhealthy obsessions and unhealthy sort of fixations on particular objects of desire are really blinding for people Mm -hmm. right um and that's most obviously that is the story that we're learning about tom riddle right we're learning about tom riddle's obsessions because they are his weakness because your obsession is always your weakness Mm -hmm. but i also wonder if we can read dumbledore's behavior in this book as also
1: obsessive oh yeah right yeah because he gets by the end of the book he gets like really like tunnel visioned Mm -hmm. when it comes to the horcruxes and collecting them and or retrieving them and ensuring that he also has the memory from slughorn that he has tasked harry with getting
0: yeah yeah i also think it's really interesting how this book is is insistently playing out the um uh similarities between harry and Mm -hmm. tom riddle right it's really it's we've seen this happen before but it's it's even more explicitly showing us the ways in which they are connected and similar as characters and i think that tendency towards the obsessive Mm -hmm. um is part of that as well right and and i feel like harry sort of inheriting dumbledore's obsession with the horcruxes is also gonna carry over into the next book too
1: Okay, so I named a bunch of, like, material things that were my favorite, but you mentioned something that was really smart that was your favorite thing, so now I'm going to take those material things and instead I'm going to talk about my actual favorite thing, which is the materiality of print culture. Do you see what Whoa. I did there? Yeah. 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 So let's go indulge in Flourish and Blots, our segment about what stuff books are made of. Mm-hmm. So once
0: again, we are going to focus a little bit more in this particular segment, uh, rather than talking about um, our actual copies of Harry Potter, since I think we've sort of exhausted that topic for the time being, we're going to talk a little bit more about the representation of books in this book, since this is a book about a book, and about Harry's fraught relationship to that book. And so as, I mean, the second book in the series that centers around books, Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to think about what what to make of this one Mm -hmm. um and the very different status it has like in this book we get the revelation that tom riddle's diary was a horcrux right and so we realize that this other book was even more powerful and evil and imbued with you know life Mm -hmm. than we had already suspected and we get that revelation against the backdrop of Of figuring out what is up with this book that Harry is kind of obsessed with. And that makes the revelation really interesting. Even though the revelation sort of the way that it's placed in the narrative is sort of like it's just sort of dropped. Like the book has been so central to everything that's been happening. And then the revelation that it was Snape Mm -hmm. is just sort of thrown out there and then not addressed again because it's in the context of Dumbledore's, spoiler alert, death
1: yeah yeah because his death obviously trumps the Mm -hmm. the the revelation that snape wrote this book or that not that snape wrote it but that snape is the author of the marginalia yeah
0: Yeah. i wonder if it's going to come up again in the next book because our revelations about snape might tie into rethinking what Oh, i wonder if the book itself will come back because it's been hidden oh i have so many questions about this book and what's going to become of it Anyway, it's
1: really hard for me to not address those questions because I love being a know-it-all, but I can't. No, nope. No spoilers. No spoilers. Um, okay, so, but you had a question about
0: the actual Half-Blood Prince
1: book. Yeah, yeah, but something that I, so before I talk about the question that I have, um, something that uh, I thought when you were talking about the fact that the book is hidden is the fact that there were a whole bunch of other books that were hidden in the same, in the Room of Requirement mm-hmm. when Harry hides the book, and the chapter, the segment where he's hiding it, um, explicitly refers to those hidden books as either being graffitied or yeah. banned. I'm so interested in the idea of a secret repository inside Hogwarts for banned books. Yeah. Like that, I think, I would love to explore that further. And we're not going to do that now. Maybe we can do that in like a future podcast or something, or maybe Mm -hmm. our listeners have things to say about this. But given the fact that Harry Potter as a book series has itself faced um, censorship, I'm so interested in Mm -hmm. its own interest as a series in the idea of censored books Mm -hmm. and banned books. Mm -hmm. That's all. Okay. So anyway, that's an aside. In the chapter Sectumsempra, after Harry has so brutally assaulted Draco Malfoy um, unintentionally in the bathroom, um, he and Hermione have this fight about the book and about the intentions of the book, which I think is, is so interesting in itself. And Hermione is accusing him of sticking up for the book, and Harry is making the argument that... The author of The Marginalia never said, hey, other reader, you should try this out. He was only, and I quote, just making notes for himself, wasn't he? Not for anyone else. And this got me thinking about who Marginalia is really for, because Mm -hmm. I write all over my books. And I have for, for many, many years. My books are where I keep my notes. Like, when I die, you can probably build a pretty interesting archive of my thoughts based on the notes that I write in my books. So, like, who are those notes for? Am I writing for myself if I go back later? It's not a journal.
0: Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember um, studying 18th century autobiography as a genre because that was sort of the rise of, of life writing. And uh, it was increasingly common for people to keep journals For all sorts of reasons of Calvinist theology that I won't go into here. Um, but our assumption that the journal as a genre is intrinsically private is misplaced because journals are often written with the assumption of posthumous reading, um, and that was certainly the case with these 18th century autobiographies, that it was a very standard publishing practice, you know, after somebody had died to to publish, to circulate their journals, at least to the family. Mm-hmm. And so you were writing it aware that at some point it would circulate. And so even though it was for this really intimate genre, it was also a public facing genre. Um, so that assumption that we have that like my personal recording of my thoughts is not meant to at some point be read... I don't think we can always make that assumption huh. and snape's marginalia in his potions book feels like it's talking to somebody else yeah. right like yeah. it it really does feel like it is addressing an imagined reader like possibly an imagined friend oh that's part of what draws harry in so much oh
1: Sorry, you said imagined friend, and it just made me realize how lonely he was when he was in high school. Yeah, yeah, nobody
0: liked him, right? And so here he is, with no friends, writing in his book, right? Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Commence Obliviate in five, four, three, two, one.
1: So we will come to know that Snape is in love with Lily Evans, right? Acceptable spoiler. And Slughorn, all throughout this book, has just sung the praises Mm -hmm. of Lily. And we know that Lily and Snape were in the same year. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Lily was particularly gifted at potions.
1: Particularly gifted at potions. Mm -hmm. And so I've never thought about this before. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I'm extremely interested in Snape as a skilled potions master who has written all of this marginalia and adapted all of these potions instructions I'm so curious as to what his relationship with Lily was like at this time because we know from book five that around the same time that they were writing their owls that Snape got really nasty and called Lily a mudblood so it's entirely plausible that they weren't friends anymore yeah but what if they were and what if they like came up with those potions and adaptations together and oh
0: my god and that would mean that when harry is reading these notes and you know like assuming that they're written by a male hand and then finding out that they're written by snape but they're actually in part recording his mother's history
1: that would be so interesting all
0: right it's also really interesting we're thinking about so the relationship between Snape and this writing and then the relationship between Harry and the writing and Harry's insistence that he knows mm-hmm. that the writer is male. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what do you make of that? He's so sure. He's like, I can just tell.
1: Can I draw a really weird parallel? Uh Okay, so Harry insists that he knows that the author of that marginalia is male. But then when we learn from Katie Bell that whoever it was that gave her the necklace at the three broomsticks was behind the bathroom door for the women's lavatory. I'm sorry, this is taking so long to get out. Woo! Um, Hermione says, well, it must have been a girl or a woman then. And I did this double take when I was like, you don't have to be a girl or a woman to walk into a bathroom that's marked one gender or another like that's there's no magic spell Uh, i mean there might be
0: there's magic spell preventing boys from entering the girls dormitory
1: oh my god okay well that's interesting i hadn't thought of that
0: i don't know i mean the status of gender in the wizarding world is very essentialist Mm -hmm. that is a whole nother thing but yes harry's insistence that this is a male hand and that he can tell somehow right because he feels addressed Mm -hmm. by this marginalia um and it would have been it would have been interesting to have him be wrong about that um but he is not but you know of course the big surprise is the revelation that it is that it is written by somebody who loathes Mm -hmm. right um and that again that sort of brings us back to this question of like the intentions of the writing because at least in this moment harry must now be thinking that there, in fact, was a malevolent intention in the writing of these notes, right? Because now he, you know, he believes Snape is evil. Okay, so feel a little bit bad about, you know, you naming material things and then me naming, like, a fancy, a fancy theoretical thing. So I will also tell you some of my more practical favorite things. I'll just keep things on your level. So I really like, I really like kitties. I really like wine. Yep. And uh, I really like resisting the version of reality offered to me by narrators occupying positions of power. <sighs> Just like three of my favorite things. So I guess it's time for The Boy Who Narrated, in which we talk about narrative perspective and resistant readings. So the first thing I wanted to chat about was um was something Marcel brought this up while we were talking about the first half of the book. And that is what is happening with the archaeological approach to unpacking Tom Riddle's past Mm -hmm. that Harry and Dumbledore are going through. Right. And that is that they're they are trying to understand what they can know about Voldemort by piecing together a series of memories that they have been given and these memories either taken straight out of the heads of people but there's an, also an implication that some people have told Dumbledore their stories right because mm-hmm. he talks about people being hesitant to talk mm-hmm. nobody wanting to talk about Voldemort right yeah. so there's also the suggestion that what we're getting is these sort of piece together oral narratives that then Harry and Dumbledore have to sort of take that and try to interpret them. Oral has a really different um, sort of truth value than print does, right? And so it's, you know, we've talked a lot about the status that print has in this book, but there's also this really important status accorded to the oral and to, you know, what we can know from very, very different perspectives, particularly from the perspectives of non-major characters Mm -hmm. you know we have one memory from Dumbledore but then other than that it's it's these sort of side characters who are who are piecing things together so we get outside of Harry's head Mm -hmm. again right we start to sort of counter his version of events through getting other people's stories Um, but we also just get more perspectives than we've seen at any other point in the book
1: Yeah. yeah yeah You know something else that is worth remarking on is the parallel between Slughorn amending his own memory versus the concept of amending a written text, mm-hmm. right? So you have the the thing that is official And then you have the thing that is amended. Mm -hmm. And obviously, in the case of Slughorn's memory, he has amended it in such a way to make himself look better so that we can't attribute blame to him for Mm -hmm. what Tom Riddle ends up doing. And to be honest, his unamended memory, it doesn't really, I think, make him look as bad as Slughorn is afraid it makes him look. Mm -hmm. Like, essentially, all he really tells Tom Riddle that Tom didn't already know is that there's a spell mm-hmm. to encase your soul in an object when you kill someone. He won't give Tom the spell. He he claims he doesn't know the spell. I guess I'm just surprised. I, yeah, I'm just surprised that he ever tried to, like, yeah. fuzz up that memory in the first place. Yeah.
0: yeah, I'd say there are two reasons why he's hiding that memory. One is that if it gets out that he is telling people that, like, that is a key to Voldemort's survival that is a secret Voldemort wants kept right Mm -hmm. and so I think part of it is Mm self-protection right he knows that he has this important piece of information and if he claims to have forgotten it Mm -hmm. and to not you know to have actually changed his own memory so he doesn't know it anymore that that at least seems to keep him safe Mm -hmm. but there's also this way in which if we're thinking of these memories as stories people are telling about themselves then there's this way in which the stories that you choose to tell and the stories that you don't choose to tell are always really powerful mm-hmm. and really important. Mm-hmm. And this is a story he doesn't want to tell about himself because in this story, he was a mentor to the most evil wizard of all time. Yeah, but, yeah. And that, you know, that's not who he wants to be. He wants to be somebody who has brought up important young people and made the world better. And when he tells this story, he becomes both sort of somebody so power hungry that he can't see right what's right in front of him but also somebody who's duped like somebody who did not see what was going on and a very perplexing like when you get those descriptions of the way that tom riddle is behaving it's like why did teachers find him charming he Mm. sounds
1: terrifying (laughs) but i mean again this is harry we're getting the information from harry right mm-hmm. and harry finds him terrifying we never really encounter tom riddle as the charming yeah. um seductive presence that he apparently was yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah we can only see because when these when these memories are being told to us they are being told as being experienced by Harry. So they're still Mm -hmm. always filtered through his perspective and his knowledge. So Mm -hmm. we're always seeing him thinking about Tom Riddle of the past as what Tom Riddle would become. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is also when we look at the, the selection of memories that are, that are chosen and that are pieced together, there is this really, this treatment by Dumbledore of, uh, He's treating Tom Riddle's past as though it is a narrative, right? Mm. That has a series of clear events that can be pieced together. But sort of what those of us who study history refer to that often as a Whiggish perspective on history, (laughs) which is that you look back at history and see only what reflects what you know of the present. Mm -hmm. And only it's this way of understanding history as a sort of inevitable path from the past into whatever's happening today and the effect of that is that it makes the present look inevitable as though it's an inevitable result of what happened in the past right so it's a it's a politically conservative view of history because it suggests that the way the world is now was inevitably the way the world was always going to be
1: are you saying that you prefer a gritty history
0: (laughs) going home Right? And, but but what happens then is that you only look at moments in Tom Riddle's past that add up to the person that he became, and it makes it look inevitable that he was going to turn out evil mm-hmm. because you don't see any of the moments that look different, right. that, that show another version of him, that show something else about what he could have been. And that's sort of doubly produced both by... The really overdetermined way that Dumbledore is plotting out Mm -hmm. Tom Riddle's life. And then by the fact that when Harry looks at those memories, he only notices details that reinforce his understanding of who Voldemort is.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, so here's the other thing I was noticing that that towards the end of this book, Dumbledore keeps emphasizing the, the dangers of fearing the unknown. And so he talks when they're when they're in the cave and Harry's freaking out because the water's full of corpses. Um, and Dumbledore's like, corpses can't hurt you. And I'm like, I beg to differ, Dumbledore. <laughs> they hurt my heart. Uh, but Dumbledore says that this is one of Voldemort's weaknesses is that he fears death and darkness because he fears the unknown, right? That's why he's too scared to die. So he becomes immortal. He's too scared you know, of what he can't control. And so he strives to control and know everything. Um, and that that desire is always going to be like a violent desire, right? That you have to become comfortable with sitting with the unknown. And that is really interesting. What, you know, in this segment, as part of the larger argument we've been making about limited perspective, and about How this book is as much about what Harry doesn't know and can't understand and thus can't control as it is about, you know, what Harry does know and what we learn from him. And that becomes, I mean, that comes to the forefront in a lot of ways in this book, both because of the ways that Dumbledore is controlling his access to information, Mm -hmm. but also because of the revelation at the end that like Dumbledore didn't know that that locket wasn't in there yeah. like by the end of this book we've entered genuinely into the realm of the completely unknown mm-hmm. nobody knows where these horcruxes are yeah. not a no none of the professors at hogwarts none of the greatest wizards in the world nobody knows where they are mm-hmm. and so harry has genuinely moved from a sort of child who doesn't fully understand the world around him to an adult who must become comfortable with the fact that the world itself is characterized by unknowability. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a sort of, I think a big point of maturation. And I think is uh, again, an interesting move as we've talked about, you know, the narrative maybe becoming a little bit more reliable as he gets older, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not this straight line of like Harry going from being an unreliable to a reliable narrator. Mm-hmm. It's, harry going from being an unself consciously unreliable narrator to one who like maybe actually has a sense of the limited nature of his own perspective on things
1: yeah like he doesn't he doesn't become omniscient oh right
0: well obviously that would be stupid but even, <laughs> even dumbledore and i want to talk about this in a later segment but even dumbledore who kind of seemed omniscient mm-hmm. is revealed to not be omniscience is revealed to be impossible yeah so so there's on a variety of levels, some really interesting things happening in this book with Harry's limited perspective on things and how that's so important to to sort of moving out into adulthood. I mean, being comfortable with death and darkness is just about being an adult, right? Oh, shit got dark.
1: Listen, I also love kitties. And I think I already made it pretty clear that I love wine. Obviously. So at least we have that one thing in common, Hannah. But you know what else I love? I love to critique other people's teaching. (laughs) Like, I love it. Which is exactly what we do in Potions Class, our segment on pedagogy at Hogwarts. All right. Why don't you... No, you. Me? Yeah. Explain how nonverbal spells work. (laughs) Okay. So I find nonverbal spells super interesting. I wish I had a better ability to remember things Mm -hmm. from the recent past, because I know that when we were having a conversation with someone, either recorded or not we were talking about the idea of nonverbal spells because there was some question about the root of magic and what language magic
0: yeah this was happened way back in. in whichever one it is that we did with Andrea oh, okay. um we talked about like latin yeah. and the root you know the, the sort of origin of language and and the question being is it language that has power in the spell casting like is it the word That has power. Mm -hmm. Is it the gesture or is it the intention or is it some combination? And then add into that the recent Pottermore revelation that some cultures of wizards don't need wands. So it's not the wand. It's not the word. But it also, I'm going to spoil, I was going to use this for final revisions, but I want to bring it up here. It also can't be the intention. Because Harry uses spells from Mm -hmm. the potions book that he finds and he has no idea what they do. Yeah. Right? So it also can't be just focusing your will. Well, that's how apparition works. But that can't be how spell working works.
1: Okay. Something occurred to me just now. So I'm just, I'm talking this out as it's coming to me right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that for western witches and wizards mm-hmm. that it is in fact the word because bear with me so when we think of *Levi corpus and sectum sempra which are the two spells that harry uses out of the potions book neither of those have any wand flicking instructions right
0: but they're nonverbal.
1: They're nonverbal, so he, he thinks the words in his head and is able to actualize those in magic. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we can think about those in relation to the way in which ideology functions at the core of language. Because pre linguistic people don't have ideology, mm-hmm. including like babies and infants, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm also wondering if the Western world is so rooted in ideology that Mm -hmm. it makes sense that our methods of magic would be so deeply rooted Mm -hmm. in language. Mm -hmm. I'm just this is coming to me right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Because ideology is all about sort of falsely linking
0: signifier and signified, Mm -hmm. right? Like how ideology works on language is that it naturalizes the arbitrary link Mm -hmm. between the signifier, which is the word that you say, and the signified, which is the thing that word indicates, and it Mm -hmm. collapses those things together. And so the version of magic that we're seeing in these books is a version in which words actually contain the thing that they do mm-hmm. in this totally natural way mm-hmm. but it is also fascinating that that doesn't always have to be the case that put that sophisticated wizards like dumbledore mm-hmm. don't need that approach mm-hmm. right and can understand magic in a very different way or skilled wizards like snape can invent new spells mm-hmm. right and so that We see the way that a particular level of critical, resistant thought allows wizards to pull those things apart, Mm -hmm. but that the sort of normal attitude is this, like, the word is the thing. Mm -hmm. That is a super smart reading. Thanks,
1: Anna. Yeah. Do you think then that we could interpret ideology as being dark magic? (laughs) okay so this one day
0: beloved guy with a film degree neil barnholden and i were having a conversation about why we love teaching at the undergrad level i was telling him that i feel like teaching undergrads about ideology like it's like teaching magic Mm -hmm. i said that because you were revealing to them that everything that they thought was real is not the way that they actually thought it was right mm-hmm. and it's like it is this harry potter moment where you're like oh you thought the world was one way and it is fundamentally not mm-hmm. so there is this magic to understanding how ideology works even if you know the ideology itself isn't necessarily the dark magic so much as it is the making the magic of power invisible mm-hmm. right because once you can unpack ideology and see how it works then you can actually take what seems to be natural and inevitable like the muggle world seems and realize that it's actually something manipulable via magic mm-hmm. yeah okay so i want to talk some more about dumbledore dumbledore throughout these books has been a godlike figure mm-hmm. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and there starts to be a lot in this book in particular, there starts to be a lot of language of faith in Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. At least what Harry repeats here is, he will only be gone from the school when none here are loyal to him. But there is this sort of implication that the important quality is having faith in Dumbledore, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, Harry insists to scrim, scrimgeour, is this how we're pronouncing it? Scrimge- I think scrimgeour. Scrimgeour. that The Gloucester. The Gloucester, yeah. Um, whether he has evidence or not, he just believes mm-hmm. what Dumbledore tells him, right? Mm-hmm. But then when he's actually in person with Dumbledore, he's resistant right? Mm -hmm. That he sort of avows this perfect faith to others. But when he comes face to face with his God, like a good Jew, he doubts, he doubts, and he questions and he resists. And Dumbledore gets mad at him, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of explaining things to him, Dumbledore uses his greater knowledge as a way of shutting Harry up, right? Mm -hmm. Like he says, you know, I'm cleverer than you. I understand things better than you do. You just have to believe me. And so there is this way that Dumbledore demands faith of his followers, Mm -hmm. that he demands that they treat him like a deity.
1: But I think that it's only in the case of why he trusts Zebra Snape. Mm -hmm. I think everything else he's willing to tell people, like give them the information that Mm -hmm. he himself has Mm -hmm. in order to maybe also with the exception of Voldemort, because he's keeping those cards really close to his chest. But it seems to be that the one thing nobody understands is why he trusts Snape. Yep. And it, that's the one thing that everybody has to take at face value. And there's that moment when Harry accosts Dumbledore, because he's just learned that it was Snape who revealed to Voldemort about the prophecy his parents, da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And the book notes that it seems like Dumbledore is considering something or Harry perceives Dumbledore to be considering something before he then makes a decision and says, essentially, I've talked about this before. You just have to trust me. And it seems to me that that is the moment when Dumbledore is deciding. Spoiler
0: alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in five, four, three, two, one
1: whether or not to tell Harry that Snape was deeply in love with Harry's mother and then chooses not to, because that's a promise that he makes to Snape. So I can't remember why I started talking about this.
0: Because that is like, there are other ways in which like, that's the one thing that he demands that Harry and everybody else take on faith. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's because he demanded that they take it on faith that then when Snape appears to turn against them, that, Everybody, you know, believes that Snape is evil. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just, there's this question in my mind always of like, how much of this Dumbledore has planned? Mm -hmm. Like, how much of this is intentional? You know, to what degree did he plan the timing of his death? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, what is so interesting is that even when Harry is resistant, even when he is angered, there is a comfort in somebody who demands that kind of faith and obedience from you. Mm. Right. That there is a way in which that makes you feel safe when somebody powerful says, you know, these are the limits. You can't go further than this. And that is why that line, that line that kills us both so much, Mm -hmm. kills us both so much. It's that line that ends the chapter where they've been in the cave and Harry has had to force feed Dumbledore this poison and he's watched his mentor his all-seeing all-powerful mentor be reduced to a childlike state and then he's saying to him he's promising to get him safely back to hogwarts um he says i can apparate us both back don't worry um and then dumbledore says i am not worried harry i am with you oh and it's it's devastating for a lot of reasons But for me, one of the primary reasons is that experience of watching somebody who you believed was the one who cared for you become somebody who you need to care for Mm -hmm. Um, and how frightening that is. I mean, it's beautiful because it is Dumbledore expressing his love for and faith in Harry, but it's also terrifying, Mm -hmm. right? Because Harry's relationship to Dumbledore has felt so theological to me, Mm -hmm. that feels like finding out that there is no God. Yeah. That ties into um, the other thing that I found really interesting is that Dumbledore uses the fact that he knew Riddle as a child as the sort of ground from which he refuses to fear Voldemort. It's the sort of flip side of when Harry grows up he has to learn to see Dumbledore as a flawed human mm-hmm. rather than this all-powerful figure. You know that scene where Voldemort comes to him and demands a job mm-hmm. at Hogwarts and Dumbledore refuses to call him Voldemort and yeah. insists on continuing to call him Tom Riddle and he says, you know, there's something about like once you've when you've known somebody as a child that you can never stop seeing them in that way. So Dumbledore still thinks of Voldemort as his student. Mm -hmm. Is that why he still sees him as somebody who can be redeemed, even if that redemption is only through death?
1: It had never occurred to me before that Dumbledore thinks of him as someone who can be redeemed. I've always known that Dumbledore thinks of him as somebody who can be stopped. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: That seems an inevitable sort of side effect of the really like psychological attitude towards understanding where Voldemort comes from though, right? right? Yeah,
1: no no no, you're you're definitely right. I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about now though is the fact that Dumbledore makes a number of references to the way in which the young Tom Riddle charmed the other teachers. But what's hidden in that or those statements is always the fact that Tom Riddle never succeeded in charming him. Mm -hmm. And so part of me wonders if as much as Dumbledore always remembered him as a child, he also always remembered him as a troubled child, right? Like Dumbledore never learned to trust Tom Riddle. And as you were saying earlier, if we take the approach of looking back on history that makes the contemporary moments seem inevitable then it would suggest that Dumbledore is right to never trust him but at the same time one might also argue that Dumbledore's refusal to let Tom Riddle get close to him might have been the reason why Tom Riddle became mm-hmm. the like vicious monster that he became like maybe Harry had he been treated with the same hesitance and coldness Mm -hmm. That we might interpret Tom Riddle being treated by Dumbledore. um, Maybe Harry would have turned out to be just as shitty. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And bear in mind
0: that we don't know for sure that Tom Riddle did the things Dumbledore thinks he did. Dumbledore is surmising Mm. the murders that he performed. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, we don't know for sure that Tom Riddle killed his father and his grandparents Mm -hmm. that is just circumstantial evidence and Dumbledore's interpretation yeah yeah this book is in part the Kunstler Roman of (laughs) Tom Riddle right Mm -hmm. it's his it's his story as much as it's anybody else's wait
1: Kunstler Roman or Bildungs Roman Bildungs Roman yeah you don't think of Voldemort as being a dark artist
0: he is a bit of a dark artist he does practice the dark arts Let's talk about Slughorn again, very briefly, only for me to say that I have finally decided for sure (laughs) that he is the professor I most want to be like because of his primary goal, which is to have, and I quote, a plentiful supply of oak matured mead, crystallized pineapple and velvet smoking jackets. I was like, holy shit, Slughorn is living the best possible life. yeah. He is winning. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. It's confession time. Here's some more things. Chocolate. Mm. We've literally been eating that tonight. Really, really brutal massages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those really big snowflakes that actually look like snowflakes. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're like, and you can see, and they look like a kid cut them out of paper talking about how different forms of power intersect and impact each other.
1: Okay, I've, while you were saying, when you were talking about the snowflakes, I was like, remember the line from the song. Come on. Come on. Remember the line from the song. And It was like, whiskers, kittens, copper kettles. Oh. And it wasn't until you finished that I was like, oh, snowflakes that stay in your nose and eyelashes. Yeah. And I feel like I missed my opportunity. I did. I totally you missed did. it. I fucked it up. So what section are we in now? Oh, did you not say it? Not yet. You go right ahead. (laughs) Shit. Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. It's the section where I interrupt Hannah's intros (laughs) and tell you about the jokes that I was trying to make while she was introducing what we're talking about. Uh, Otherwise known as the section in which we discuss bodies and what power does to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) You're going to have to edit that together. Oh, no. (laughs) Some of our wonderful listeners have, in the past, uh, sent us some information about werewolfism as a metaphor for HIV, and the way that that affects Lupin, and how the actor who plays Lupin in the movies... Oh, if, if I don't fucking remember. Okay. This is well, your job to remember names. <laughs> <laughs> How it impacts his characterization of Lupin. So it's a little um, bit... It's,
0: so, so And somebody... Part of this was imagining Lupin also as bisexual.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I want to talk about this now because I think that there's some really spectacular textual evidence for this theory. Even though this is a discussion maybe better suited for an analysis of the movies, I think it's important to talk about it now because there are a couple of things going on with Lupin and Tonks and the way that the book characterizes Lupin's um, acquiescence to Tonks' desire for him that I think really supports a reading of him as queer I guess the thing that I'm trying to get at is that Lupin's reluctance to get into a relationship with Tonks, I think is maybe, based on the evidence in the book, maybe more complicated than just, I have werewolfism and I don't want to put you at risk. Because he doesn't ever seem overly enthused about being with her. His being with her always appears to me to be an act of attempting to have a huge scare quotes, normal life. Mm. And so I interpret Lupin's reluctance as he's not actually attracted to her because he's attracted to men. There's no textual evidence for Lupin's interest in None. There's
0: nothing. There isn't a moment. There isn't a longing glance. There isn't a word dropped I mean, the the fraught relationship that Lupin is working through is his relationship with Fenrir Greyback, Mm -hmm. right? This relationship that seems to be about fascination and fear. I'm not suggesting that's a positive relationship because it's clearly monstrous and abusive. But Mm -hmm. there's also something highly sexualized about Fenrir Greyback's treatment of being a werewolf, Mm -hmm. I think, would also lend itself to the sort of reading we were developing, right? In which where Lupin's actual desires lie are a form of desire that he, you know, that is socially ostracized, that he is disgusted by, that -hmm. he is uncomfortable embracing. And so instead he goes with this, you know, what for all intents and purposes in this book appears to be, a relationship he has no
1: interest in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And JK Rowling weighed in and said that Lupin Ooh. isn't queer, but she's wrong about lots of things. So yeah, she might be wrong about this. She's not
0: the boss of these texts. Nope. So this is the section where I thought we might talk a little bit,
1: a little bit more
0: about the problem of evil in these books mm-hmm. and how we can reconcile ourselves to the fact of Voldemort's evil and to what we learn about Tom Riddle as a character And whether or not the books are suggesting that evil is biological, genetic, destined, inevitable, um, something that was just in him when he was born, or if it's the result of a particular sort of set of events in your life, right? So on the one hand, we have the narrative telling us overwhelmingly that it's something intrinsic to Voldemort, because Mm -hmm. all the bad things that happened to Voldemort also happened to Harry. Mm -hmm. And Harry does not turn out like that. Right. And Harry's parents were good and Voldemort's parents were bad. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that it is innate. On the other hand, all of the details we learn about Voldemort and about his innate evilness are being told to us, as we talked about in the last section, by a man who failed to offer Voldemort the kinds of care that he offered Harry Mm -hmm. and that he may then have a vested interest in constructing Voldemort's evil as inevitable, not a product of being treated that way as a child.
1: Honestly, I'm rendered speechless by the notion that the book might be suggesting that people are born evil, but at the same time, if the book is suggesting that people are made evil through their circumstances, oh man, can we all like, let me just backtrack. Hermione very wisely points out that evil is a pretty strong word. (laughs) and it's a word that i i think is maybe i'm not sure that i want to use Mm, god damn it
0: i feel like it needs to be used to talk about voldemort right because of the level of extremity that he has gone to to dehumanize himself the book tells us souls exist Mm -hmm. and that voldemort has ripped his soul into pieces Mm -hmm. through repeated deliberate murders right if evil is a thing that is evil yes right okay and so then your question has to be how does one arrive at that point
1: mm-hmm.
0: all right i remember studying the holocaust
1: bringing hitler into it huh? Yep.
0: i mean because this is because that's what the <laughs> subtext is of voldemort and uh having a debate with a with a professor of mine about the problem of human evil because hannah arendt hannah arendt I shouldn't say her name the way I say my name. Hannah Arendt wrote this book on the banality of evil, right? Mm -hmm. Where she essentially argues that what happened in Nazi Germany was that, you know, there were a couple of people who had this really great idea and then everybody else was just following orders right and that that's what the the terrible thing about evil is that it's actually not people meaning to be evil that it's, mm-hmm. it's people just do as they're told it's just thoughtlessness it's just ideology
1: just ideology
0: and my professor refusing this premise and insisting that what we actually saw in the context of nazism was the fact that some people just are evil and that in moments where we lose the sort of state apparatus that holds their evil at bay, when they're sort of liberated to act upon it, mm-hmm. some people will. Hmm. And that it's society's job to keep everybody so under control mm-hmm. that those among us who have a capacity for evil just don't have the chance to act upon it. And I I refuse that premise with every atom of my being
1: i would argue though that something that is equally horrifying is the notion that if you fuck up raising your kids you are gonna produce an evil genocidal maniac
0: um
1: i don't know i mean
0: in the in the real world i don't believe that evil is a thing because i don't believe in souls um but i I believe in power Mm -hmm. and i think evil lets us off the hook a huge political force like Nazism isn't one guy's idea. Right. It is caused by a complex, a huge complex variety of historical, social, political, mm-hmm. cultural forces that can't be concentrated around one individual.
1: Ex- except for in the narrative of history where they are very comfortably concentrated around one individual right which is very much the same thing that we get with Voldemort when we look at the Death Eaters we see these people who are apparently swayed by the influence of one charismatic individual which in actuality is not at all convincing yeah
0: so what if we refuse this narrative of Voldemort's evil entirely and instead look at how the wizarding world is constructed in a way that allows for or even encourages these forms of power Right. Which is to say that there are these notions of these sort of hierarchies of who's a better and who's a worse wizard built into every level of British wizarding society. Mm -hmm. These ideas of wizards being better than muggles. Mm -hmm. Right. The language of muggle that, you know, the non-magical is other. And that logic of whatever I am as a wizard is not what you are as a muggle. That logic is right there the basis for forms of violence. Mm -hmm. You might decide like Mr. Weasley that you're going to treat muggles kindly and sort of patronizingly. Mm -hmm. But the other side of the coin is genocide, right? The other side of the coin is you are still by definition, not me. Mm -hmm. And so, Wizards who come from that are also going to be other in some way, impure in some way. Mm -hmm. That logic is built into the structure of the houses at Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. And Voldemort, if we read the wizarding world in that way, becomes an inevitable product of the way that the wizarding world works. Right. He's not an aberration. He is what happens when you construct a world around othering and power and hierarchies. Mm hmm.
1: Man, reading is hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now that we're good and exhausted, what we should definitely do is move on to further conversations about this book's investment in violence against women and misogyny. (laughs) So what we were talking about beforehand was this idea of the intrinsic links between tom riddle's hatred for women and misogyny and his propensity towards abuse and violence and you hannah had pointed out that there's a a kind of sexualized nature to tom riddle and voldemort do you want can you talk more about that
0: yeah i mean right from the beginning there's emphasis time and again on how beautiful he is Mm -hmm. right and that his beauty is um sort of like a little bit effeminate almost but in this way that makes him seem sort of particularly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And once he arrives at Hogwarts, he has this ability to sort of seduce everyone around him and that mm-hmm. is again linked to his beauty and to a beauty that is pansexual. Mm-hmm. Right? That he has this sort of this sway over men and women. Mm-hmm. Like I just have this this like real image of him, like I feel like the sort of iconography that he's being linked to is of like the male courtesan, right? Mm-hmm. The way he's described the very pale skin and the dark hair and the beauty and the the silkiness mm-hmm. and the the sort of control over people. like it's drawing on this vocabulary in my head of this particular image mm-hmm. of the sort of slightly emasculated but sexually powerful male figure.
1: You had in I think our first episode commented on Voldemort's orientalization, yeah. right? Which our self-proclaimed number one fan, Sylvie Vigne, pointed out we never revisited. Mm-hmm. Um so this might be a good moment to prove Sylvie wrong. <laughs> Unbreak our promise and revisit this idea of drawing on these tropes of the Orient to create the character Voldemort. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There is absolutely something Orientalized
0: about that, the whatever sexual power Voldemort is constructed as having, Mm -hmm. you know, and we get it clearly in moments, um, his relationship to Slughorn, Mm -hmm. um, his relationship to that elderly woman who he supposedly murders for her hepsiba that like he's obviously deliberately seducing mm-hmm. figures, but at the same time as there being this sexualized edge to his violence, he also seems like an asexual character. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, that's also I don't know, important
1: in some way. I think so these things are all like collapsed on top of each other to create this character who is other, right? Like mm-hmm. he's not Again, enormous scare quotes, normal, yeah. because he is eschewing this notion of like a normal man who, who has a relationship, a monogamous relationship with a normal woman and then has children. Instead, he's taking this completely different route. And all of the ways in which Voldemort is exoticized are distinctly oriental, I think, further in this idea of his misogyny. Right. Mm -hmm. Because just as he is described as somewhat effeminate and beautiful and is not actually trustworthy around women, because Mm -hmm. as we all know, the construction of the evil Oriental is also violently abusive towards women. Which feeds into our contemporary Islamophobia. Like all of these things are connected and help to construct this image of Voldemort as someone who is so desirable, but so dangerous. And it is in his desirability that makes him dangerous. And it is in the ways that we think that he is safe that he is dangerous. He does not appear to be a sexual predator. Therefore, he must be a sexual predator. All of these things. Mm -hmm. Do you you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah,
0: no, they're all, they're all really tied up together, right? The sort of anxiety about the, whatever, the perversions of this, again, sort of exoticized male figure who is not participating in normative, Mm -hmm. relationships and so the relate whatever he's doing must be beyond the pale must be perverse in some way we Mm -hmm. don't know what it is but we know that he took two small children into a cave Mm -hmm. um you know we don't understand what his relationship to women is but we know that it's built upon something unnatural something violent and something that has the sort of death drive rather than erotic drive, right? Remember mm-hmm. we talked about the sort of death, the queer death drive as a feature of Umbridge mm-hmm. as a character. Yeah. And I think that there's something similar happening with Voldemort as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that our, our most villainous characters are slightly queered characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know because there's some equivalent because there's some link in this book series between, power and a lack of sexuality or between power and non-normative sexuality because if we add dumbledore into that then Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm not sure but uh but yeah there's something there's something very sort of fraught about voldemort's construction as a character and the way that we see it beginning with him as this sort of beautiful seductive young man Mm -hmm. who is interested in power and not interested in pleasure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Yeah. In a very different book, Tom Riddle turns into Christian Grey. <laughs> Did you know that dark Romans... Anyway, we don't have time for this. You know what we do have time for? Did you watch?
1: Harry performs a proxy for Judaism in this book, in which he wrestles with his god, But if anybody ever tries to say anything bad about his God, he's like, oh, no, you don't. No, I believe in this 100%. Don't you even go there. Before we officially move on to the next segment, I just want to point out that we had to get chips because we've been talking for an hour and a half and we're both exhausted with all of our critical analysis. So if you hear crunching in the background, it's. It's because we got hungry. <laughs> Obviously, we've missed our most favoritist thing of all, which is the righteous beauty of feminist critique. I guess it's time for Granger Danger.
0: Okay, so earlier on... When we were talking about the sort of through line of obsession, unhealthy obsession in this narrative, Marcel sort of, you know, drew a connection of, you know, one of the forms that unhealthy obsession takes is like the one that we see in Marope towards the elder Tom Riddle that leads to her sort of choosing to use a love potion on him. And Marcel, you were suggesting that there's a way in which the book leads you or encourages you to treat the use of love potions as a sort of extension of that theme of unhealthy obsession Um, and that you're interested in uh, in maybe refusing that
1: (laughs) link, maybe just setting it on fire. It's pretty obvious that love potions in this book function as a parallel for the date rape drug. That's definitely the implication that we get. I guess I'm really interested in how and why it is that Love Potions seem so smoothly constructed as a kind of natural recourse for those experiencing obsessive love when this book is in and of itself so interested in violence against women. And I'm also really interested in the fact that for a book so invested in violence against women, it is always women who are using love potions against men. Mm -hmm.
0: I also think that like, because of the way that patriarchy constructs sexuality as intrinsically an act of violence of men against women and naturalizes that, I mean, that obviously the vast majority of the weight of that rape culture impacts women and women's bodies. But there is also a reverse effect in which when men are raped... That sort of seems impossible from mm-hmm. the perspective of rape culture because men are the ones who perpetuate that violence, not the ones who are who are the objects of it, right? Yeah. And so, I also like there's a variety of reasons to not refuse this this story in which Marope mm-hmm. gives gives Tom Riddle the love potion. But there's also then the question of like love potions, which are date rape drugs. Um, why are those a tool of women? Mm -hmm. What does that tell us about the stance of women in the wizarding world?
1: Okay, so one of the things that I think is happening in the book is that it is entirely possible to conduct a surface-level reading of this book and to see the way in which um, love potions slash date rape drugs function here as being comical. Mm -hmm. However, I think that the book's inherent interest in violence against women and sexual violence and abuse of power, I think it's possible to see those things as connected to this idea of love potion. So I I think that the book wants and invites a reading that resists linking love potions with comedy.
0: Mm -hmm. Part of that is the fact that the main narrative role of a love potion in this novel is not funny. It no. is it is the act of violence in which Voldemort begins,
1: right? And even th- even the one scene where we get something that is kind of funny, right? With with Ron all of a sudden being like, "I love Remilda Vane," yeah. and then like bonking Harry over the head, and then Ron almost fucking dies. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. So it's true he doesn't almost die from the love potion, but it is the chain of events, right? Yeah. So I, it this it's hard. Yeah. It, this is hard yeah. to talk about.
0: Yeah. The the one thing that occurs to me is that what what women's use of love potion tells us or just reminds us is the way in which patriarchal power plus compulsory heterosexuality tells young women that they don't count as fully formed subjects Mm -hmm. outside of monogamous heterosexual relationships that if they are not the object of a male gaze they do not have value right and we're seeing the way that that construction has this really violent outcome, Mm -hmm. right? Which is that, you know, they act upon it in a way that is violent because that larger system is violent towards women, but it is also violent towards everybody. And it catches these young women up in these cycles of violence. Sort of played out in a slightly lighter way in Hogwarts. But when we look at it in the case of Marope and see how, As a non-reproductive woman in her father's household, she is completely disempowered. Mm -hmm. And it's only through marriage and childbearing that she is able to escape that violence, right? Which ties us back to our discussion of the first half of this book about how violence breeds violence.
1: Right. Yeah. So the only way that she knows how to attain some kind of power... And personhood Mm -hmm. is through enacting that kind of violence Mm -hmm. against another person. Someone who is weaker than her and Tom Riddle Sr. is made weaker than her through the aid of the date rape drug. Yeah. (sighs)
0: Speaking of women's violence, let's revisit our conversation about Mrs. Weasley being just like a really, really bad feminist ally in the first half of this book. (laughs) Mrs. Weasley was being a bigot because she was assuming that because Fleur is beautiful that that must mean that she is stupid and shallow mm-hmm. um and that she cannot possibly that her relationship cannot possibly be based in anything more than beauty mm-hmm. right and yeah. in the moment when mrs weasley after bill has been Malled. mauled badly by fen or grayback right which when we tie it into the conversation we were having about lupin and fenrir has some other connotations to it and Mrs. Weasley basically assumes that Fleur's gonna call off the wedding. Mm-hmm. And Fleur says, like, oh, you think he won't love me anymore now that this has happened to him, and mm-hmm. Mrs. Weasley has to be like, No <laughs> That's not exactly no, I assume okay. that you're a terrible person. Was I wrong? And it's you know, it's in that moment when Fleur's like, No fuck you, for fundamentally diminishing my relationship in this way mm-hmm. that Mrs. Weasley sort of realizes the mistake that she's made.
1: When Fleur makes that comment about how the only thing that these scars that have completely altered Bill's face forever and have made him look like Mad-Eye Moody, when she points out that all those scars do is demonstrate that her husband is brave, like, I just... (laughs) God, you guys, the power of love is just so beautiful. So beautiful. She's such an undervalued character.
0: And it's so... Like, people are so fast to forget she was one of the Tri-Wizard champions she, she is a serious human being yeah. and we will see in the next book that when like shit goes down she is there in the mix to watch the way in which fleur is treated because she is part vila part yeah. vila and so there's this assumption mm-hmm. that all she is is like a siren mm-hmm. right and it's like people just underestimate her over and over and over again it's frustrating
1: yeah it makes me wish that she had a bigger role you know that that she could like come out as some kind of i don't know minister for magic in another book series Mm
0: -hmm.
1: fleur delacour fleur delacour hyphen weasley becomes the next minister for magic i can believe that this granger danger we're not going to talk a whole lot about hermione the one thing that i do think it's really worth pointing out is just how much better of a reader Hermione is than Harry. Um, we've, again, we've, and we and
0: again. We've
1: talked about this before, but all throughout this book, until we get the reveal at the end, Harry is under the impression that Mrs. Weasley wants Bill to marry Tonks. Similarly, we get this like constant refrain of Harry knowing that Hermione knows that Harry's got a bone for Ginny. Yeah. Hermione is constantly like, so Harry, Ginny and Dean had a fight yesterday. Just thought you should know.
0: And also, like, when things start going bad with Ron and Lavender, Hermione is also just, like, walking around being, like, so smug. Like, I know exactly how all of this is ending. I know exactly how narrative works. Oh, Hermione.
1: But when Ron and Lavender break up, Hermione isn't, like, immediately there and being like, hey, Ron, I'm into you. Mm -hmm. Hermione's still like legitimately angry with Ron for being an idiot and having a really stupid way of dealing with his own insecurities as a sexual person. I would argue maybe she's not sure that Mm -hmm. she wants to be with him Mm -hmm. because he's done such a shitty job at being a person. Yeah, no, I think that the sort of her primary role in this book is to be the
0: one who is reading things correctly including this potions book right harry keeps saying like oh well i couldn't have saved ron if i hadn't read it he's like yeah we fucking learned about that in first year like if you had ever paid attention to class you would have known this right like ultimately all harry gets out of reading this book is glory so yeah she's better at reading always always forever I think we've done a really good job of staying positive. So as our reward, in addition to chips and fizzy water, it's time for final revisions in which we take turns asking each other interpretation testing questions. Marcel, you asked me last time about whether or not Harry was a good ally. And I'm interested in asking you today whether you think Harry is a good feminist. On page 503, dear readers, Hermione gets mad at Harry because he insists, he is insisting that the prince could not possibly be a girl. And Hermione says, the truth is that you don't think a girl would have been clever enough. And he says, how can I have hung around you for five years and not think girls are clever? It's the way he writes. I just know the prince was a bloke. I can tell. Ha <laughs> ha Sorry, I laughed at myself, marginalia.
1: Harry is not a feminist. Harry is one of those dudes who is like, I love my mom and I love my sisters. How can I hate women? He does not understand that there's a difference between loving individual women and being invested in the emancipation of non-male people. And I think the perfect example of this is the description when Harry replies to Hermione, which is the thing that made you laugh. So Harry is, and I quote stung by Hermione's accusation and that stinging in his heart is the stinging of his weak male fragility. (laughs) He needs constant reassurance from the women in his life that he's good enough because that's, how male fragility works so there's that there's also the fact of his desire for Ginny and his bros before hoes mentality that makes me really uncomfortable at no point does Harry really think of Ginny even though Ginny becomes a person to him Mm -hmm. he is never successfully able to dissociate her from Ron Mm -hmm. so Ginny always remains the object of Ron's friendship to him right and there's the moment when he thinks to himself this is something that he and ron agree ginny is too popular for her own good
0: grossed me
1: out yeah it's the moment when harry's like oh if i don't ask her out soon somebody else will so like harry doesn't really see girls and women as equal to men Mm -hmm. he sees them as other and because he sees them as other he can't be a feminist. Excellent answer. You're very good at this. Thank you for the question. God, it feels so good to get those things out.
0: Thank you, beloved listeners, for joining us for episode 11B of Witch Please. As always, you can find the rest of our episodes at owitchplease.ca or subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. And don't forget that you can leave us a review. Shout out to Geo3100 and JV Purcell for doing just that. And incidentally, being the coolest.
1: Special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts.
0: Hi, how are you doing?
1: And shout outs full of iHeart emojis to everyone tweeting at us or tweeting about us. And I just want to say that I haven't done this for literally months. Like, it's been so long since I've done this that I was actually under the impression that Hannah wasn't going to make me do it anymore. That's how long it's been. Liv Speaks, The Mirage Child, k 2, Acacia Ives, The Type Set, Kristen Morin, Redicopter, Ifia S, J.V. Purcell, Virginia Woof, Emily Hoven, Physics, Katie, Pra, Chris, Ms. Megan, Another Great, etc., Duchess Cadbury, Karina Sophie Biblio, Page vs. Reality, Niemols Winter, Liebigen, Paula Gabrielis, Jordan Ruth, M reads books, Lisa or Melissa, M W Boyce, Alan Matley, Noah Potter, Vigneux, Debecle. El Bourgogne, Seen and Heard Yeg, I Can So Do Random, Debbie Kinsey, Matt Domville, Ashtown1990, caveat Decorum, Red or MC1R, Manxome Faux, Escaletli, Catherine1976, Claudia's NTA, Vic Jones, Now We Are All Tom, Ago Saguero, Nerd Night Yeg, El Sergi, Fangirls Online, Neapolitan, Jabbermackie, Joyful Follies, Jess A. Haynes, Dear Alina, Smaracuya, Yeg Nerd List, Darvin111, I. Metzler, Lindsay Seater, SS Librarianship, Mother Fungus, Alana, or do you want me to count out the A's? <laughs> oh, no, okay, funny. okay. Broken Tape Deck, Mar Shameless, which is my stage name, Chelsea Chan, Ms. Laura Lipstick, Books and Sundry, Cook the Sam, T-Velanilla Four, Indigo Han, Arvethley, The Kalesa, A.L. Loveday, Karen Undland, Brie Mrocek, Nerdling, Katie Hazenbank, T Chow Fraser, Flo Dot, Mick Jack Joe, Nineteen Eighty Connor, Katarina Hoven, Terry Lee McGarry. It's just Roar, Kiss Me Hardy podcast broadcast. It's Jane Lindsay, Nisa Mali, Kat Manica, Bahar O, and Alicia McLeod.
0: Amazing work, Marcel. Oh, oh. <laughs> you did such a good job. You can probably expect a mini soda or two before we move on to the next movie. Who knows? <laughs> we certainly don't. But we'll be back soon with more nonsense for you all. But until then,
1: later, Whisper. <laughs> I would argue that based on the fact that Tomp's, <laughs>
0: Tomps. Thompson Thompson Wow, you're on fire
1: tonight. I mean so... you mean stomp? <laughs> Stomps. Stomps the Stompy Dwarf. Oh man.